How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's um, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in fellowship, ready to study the word. Um, Make sure that you're in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit, who is the one who teaches us, leads us, guides us, directs us in our spiritual life and produces uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and um, use First John 1, 9 if necessary, then I will uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we are so very grateful that we can come before your throne of grace this evening, recognizing that you are the only source of stability and happiness and peace in the universe, And only when we are in right relationship with you can we truly experience that fullness of joy and peace that you have for us. Father, we're thankful that we live in a nation where we still have the freedom to study your word and proclaim the truth of the gospel. And, Father, there are many forces both outside of our country as well as within our country that seek to limit, destroy these freedoms. We pray that you would continue to frustrate their plans and continue to promote and lift up those who would uh, preserve our freedoms, those who are seeking office uh, this year, especially this election year. We pray that you would elevate those who would uh, preserve our freedoms, those who are focused on um, eternal truths, establishment truths, and, Father, that you would limit the plans and the uh, hopes of those who would limit and destroy our freedoms. Father, we pray tonight that as we study your word that we might focus on that which is the real source of freedom, freedom in the soul, freedom, uh, spiritual freedom as a result of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And we pray that as we study this evening that we will get a uh, fresher insight and understanding into all that you have provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and I've been going through the introductory part of Romans 6, which basically the first four verses, because this establishes the foundation of everything that Paul says in the rest of this this chapter. If we come to understand what he says in these first uh, seven verses, seven or eight verses at the very beginning, then the rest of the chapter is fairly easy. But it's understanding this as the foundation. And so we see that in at the instant of salvation, Scripture says that we are baptized into Christ. Now, normally, well, I'm going to point out some implications of this as we go through. Normally, when we read passages that talk about being in Christ, that is uh, the Greek phrase, the Greek preposition, in, E-N. But what we have here... When we're identified in Christ, this is, um, for example, that we've been baptized into Christ in verse 3 and into his death. This is the Greek preposition ace, and that's important to understand the, the implication of that. It's very similar. These two prepositions often overlap. In fact, historically, the in preposition just ends up dropping out of the Greek language 
over the next couple of centuries so that the dominant preposition is the ace preposition. So there's always this kind of transition in, in uh, different languages. But what it's focusing on is our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which means that there is this radical break, this radical transformation in relation to the sin nature that is the foundation for our spiritual life. So just by way of review, these first four verses, let me read them. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, as I've pointed out in the previous studies, the key words that we see here are sin and grace, die to sin, and then the command, how shall we live in it? So there's that contrast between death and life. And then the phrases related to baptism in verse 3, baptized into Christ Jesus and baptized into his death. And then in verse 4, baptism into death. All of these have to do with that basic idea of uh, identification for the ultimate goal of walking, that is, living day-to-day, moment-by-moment, in newness of life. This promises real change, true transformation from what we were before we were saved to what God intends us to be. Now, there's a lot of people who are skeptical because they look around and they don't see people who change very much, and they don't think that real change is possible. But this is the promise here, is that radical transformation is not only possible, it is expected of anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ. We see that the verb baptism here is expressed as a past tense, indicating that this is something that has happened in the believer's life. It's something that has occurred in the past and it and the way Paul talks about it, not the grammar, but just the way Paul talks about it, is he's talking about present results as a result of this previous action. And the result is that we are to walk in newness of life. This is uh, expressed as a as a uh, as an imperative. It's a subjunctive, but it's expressed as, as something that we should be doing. Now, in the last few lessons, I've talked about the definition of baptism, and just by way of review, baptism is in its literal denotation means to dip, plunge, or immerse, and so that's the literal meaning. Is John the Baptist baptized in the uh, in the Jordan River? He's literally immersing people in the water, but it. It's not the physical immersion that's important. It's what it represented. It was a ritual that had a symbolic meaning. It's designed to teach something. It's a ritual that has reality in the sense that it proclaims a truth in the same way that communion does. When we have the Lord's table, we have a ritual. Now, it only has a reality for people who understand the significance. We have two symbols in the Lord's table. We have the unleavened bread, and we have the the cup. 
The unleavened bread represents the humanity of Christ that's without sin, leaven being a, a picture or symbol that's used in the Scripture to illustrate sin, and the absence of leaven in the bread indicates the absence of sin in the one that the bread represents. The bread is a type, and it represents the humanity of Jesus, and that's called the antitype, or what that's what the uh, ultimate represent, representation stands for, what it pictures. The cup stands for his death. And so the, the, there's a it's teaching something in a very simple way. Sometimes we get a little complicated in things, and things get a little um, sophisticated because there's a lot of detail in the Scripture. But we see how God reduces certain difficult truths to understand to very simple uh, pictures so that anybody can grasp it and understand it. The Lord's table is a picture of what, hap- what, what was provided for us in salvation. It's a picture of our Savior and what he did for us, who he is and what he did. In the same way, baptism... Believer's baptism, Christian baptism for the church age, is a picture of what happened at the instant of salvation in this whole act that we refer to as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is used by Jesus to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection and to bring us into the body of Christ so that we become not only one with Christ, but in the body of Christ, all believers are members of one another. Now, that's something that we can't grasp on our own. It's not an experiential truth, but it is true nevertheless. Yet, in order to get that to a point where we can understand it, we have this physical act of water baptism. It's not the baptism that does anything. It is a teaching tool so that we understand what we also refer to as positional truth. But positional truth is a term that is uh, that goes right over a lot of people's heads because they don't understand what the position is and what the truth is. We understand that term because we've used it many times, but for a lot of people who are new to Christianity or who are not in churches where much teaching takes place, that's a term that has no meaning for them. But it, but Paul is talking about this as the foundation for understanding everything that we are to do in Christ. It, to understand this is to give us that foundation to think about who we are and what how we're supposed to live in terms of what Christ has done for us. It's retooling our thinking. Whatever image you have of yourself, what, however we think about who we are, this is the image that's foundational, is that we are transformed and we've been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that there's this definitive break with the tyranny of the sin nature. So in terms of the basic chart that we've used so many times, we have the eternal realities on the left side represented by a circle of white because I'm I'm emphasizing the, the, this walking in the light and being in the light, being a child of the light uh, imagery that's used in Scripture. This is being in Christ. And at the instant that we trust in Christ, God uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection.
That's an eternal reality, an eternal position. That's the foundation for the Christian life. We're to walk in the light. So again, a circle that's white indicating the light. And when we're walking in the light, we're being filled by means of the Spirit with God's Word. We're walking by means of the Spirit. We're walking in the light, walking in the truth. We're abiding in Christ. All of these terms mean roughly the same thing. But we sin. And when we sin, we're out of fellowship, and so we're walking in darkness. But see, positionally, we're still children of light. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 that you were children of light. We are to walk as children of light. We're to live as children of light. That term walking indicates day-by-day, moment-by-moment lifestyle. And the way to recover from carnality is to confess our sins, and we're instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness and restored to fellowship. Now, that act of baptism is a radical reality, but it's not experiential. We have to walk by faith, not by feeling, not by sight, not by experience. We have to make this a foundational element in how we think about who we are and what we're supposed to do in our Christian life. Now, when we get into this passage, as I pointed out last time, I'm always uh, somewhat surprised by the number of people, uh, commentaries and various theologians, who want to bring water baptism into the meaning of these first seven verses. And it's not just Baptists that do that. I know Presbyterians who have done that and Calvinists who have done that, but that really doesn't fit. Now, in terms of understanding baptism, we have to recognize that there are eight different baptisms. This is basic for many of you. There's the baptism, there's the three that involve water. These are ritual baptisms. The baptism of Jesus, which was unique, inaugurated him into his uh, ministry as uh, high priest and as uh, uh, and his ministry on the earth. Then there's the baptism of John the Baptist, even though John the Baptist baptized Jesus, It's a distinct baptism because John's baptism was for Jews to repent toward God uh, in relation to the coming of the kingdom. And so that there's nothing for Jesus to repent for because he's without without sin. So his baptism is distinct. Baptism of John the Baptist is only was only for those who were alive at that time when there was a legitimate offer of the kingdom. John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've studied this many times. Jesus' message initially was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was the legitimate offer of the kingdom, and the sign of those who were willing to turn, as the command uh, was mentioned in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, that the Jews, who, when, when Israel turned back to God, then God would bring them back from the four corners of the earth and establish the kingdom. So this is all related to that kingdom uh, kingdom message. But they rejected the message, the offer of the king. They rejected the king, and so the kingdom was postponed. So that baptism was temporary. It didn't have anything to do with the church age. It didn't have anything to do with the Holy Spirit. Then we have the baptism of believers, first mentioned in Acts uh, 2.38 in Peter's uh, Sermon on the Day of Pentecost, and also in the passage we've been studying in Acts on Tuesday, Tuesday night in Acts uh, eight thirty six to thirty eight, when immediately after 
the Ethiopian unit accepts uh, Jesus as the Messiah. They find what was probably a mikveh somewhere along the road to Jerusalem, and they and he was baptized. Then there are five real baptisms. Now, a real baptism is a bapt. It's it's real in, in the sense that it is, it is true, and it but it is not a ritual. It is a true identification that takes place. And there are five: the baptism of Noah, the baptism of Moses, the baptism of fire, which was judgment. This is a baptism identification of judgment that comes at the end of the tribulation period. The baptism of the cross, this is Christ's identification with our sin when he is on the cross, uh, Mark 10, 38 to 39, and the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of Noah is found in 1 Peter 3, 20 to 21. The baptism of Moses is when the children of Israel are identified with Moses' belief in God and trusting in, in Moses' announcement of God that God would deliver them and they walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then uh, the baptism of fire, Matthew three thirteen to 17, the baptism of the cross in Mark 10, 38 to 39, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 13. Now I want to talk a minute about this baptism of Noah. That's one that a lot of people have trouble with. So I want to hit that briefly and help you understand this passage. It's kind of a fun passage. In 1 Peter chapter 3, one of the, uh, and it's connected to one of those, uh, bizarre instances in the Old Testament that some people really have trouble with. And that's the incident in Genesis 6 when we're told that the sons of God looked upon the daughters of men and saw that they were uh, good to be their wives and they cohabited with them. And then later in the passage, it talks about the product of that is men of renown, giants were on the earth in those days, indicating that there was some sort of, of uh, monster, uh, uh, monster of children from these unions. Who are the sons of God? And there's a couple, three different views on who the sons of God were. And the only view that makes sense biblically is a view that these were the fallen angels because that term, sons of God, Beneha Elohim in the Hebrew, always refers to angelic beings in the Old Testament. Job 1, Job 2, Job 47, all, Job 42, all these places, sons of God always refers to angels. People say, well, how can, if angels have spirit bodies, how can they uh, cohabit, procreate with human beings? Well, I don't know all the answers to that, but I do know that we have different pictures in Scripture of angelic beings who take on uh, the appearance of human beings and a corporeal body, such as the angels that came with the Lord to Abraham in Genesis chapter uh, 19. And when they come to Abraham's tent, they are tired, they lie down, they rest, they eat, they drink, they have all, their, their bodies have all of these normal human biological functions. So the implication from that is that angelic beings had the ability to transform themselves into uh, human corporeal bodies with normal human biological function. Beyond that, I don't know. I just have to go with what the, what the scriptures say. Other alternatives just don't seem to uh, really uh, satisfy in terms of uh, 
of consistent use of language. So this is this First Peter three passage is a reference back to those fallen angels who were called identified as the sons of God because that term refers to both fallen angels and elect angels, and that's the background for this. So First Peter three eighteen states one of the great salvation verses that you ought to memorize sometime. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Think in terms of our passage in Isaiah 53 we're studying on Tuesday night where it says that he is the righteous servant who would justify the many. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Now, if you've got a New American Standard Bible, and I don't know about the NIV, but I know it's true for the NASB. They capitalize that spirit so that it's by means of the Holy Spirit. He's made alive by the Holy Spirit. But then you have a problem because verse 19 begins, in which, and that would indicate that in which or by the Holy Spirit he went and made proclamation of the spirits now in prison which really doesn't make sense because it's a neuter pronoun there. The in which is a neuter singular pronoun. And usually when the Holy Spirit is in view, you frequently have a masculine pronoun, even though spirit pneuma is a neuter noun in the Greek. You always have to have agreement. When a pronoun refers back to a noun, it has to agree in terms of of uh, gender and and number. So if you have a neuter noun, the pronoun has to be a neuter pronoun. If you have a feminine noun, the pronoun referring to it would be a feminine pronoun. If you have a masculine noun, then same thing would be true. You'd have a masculine uh, pronoun. But in many cases, you have the Holy Spirit, which is a neuter noun, referred to by a masculine pronoun, which is may appear to be bad grammar, but it, uh, th- these are verses that, that give evidence that the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a, a, a neutral spirit, which is how some liberal Protestant theologians take that. So it's better to understand this in terms of the fact that, that Christ dies in the flesh physically. He's physically dead, and that physical body goes in the grave. But his immaterial person is absent from the body and as a non-physical entity he goes to to uh, Tartarus here it's called Hades but we'll straighten that out in a minute he goes to Tartarus and makes this proclamation to the angels that's what first Peter 3:19 says in which that is in this state of being in an immaterial body also, he went and made proclamation. The word there is kerugma, uh, uh, indicating an announcement. Uh, it's, he's not preaching the gospel to them. It's not. He doesn't say evangelize. Many times when you have preached the gospel in the book of Acts, uh, preaches typically a translation of kerugma or keruso, the verb, but in... Um, 
in Acts, it's often preach the gospel is often a translation, and even just preaching is often a translation of the Greek verb evangelizo, which means to evangelize. So it's clearly talking about giving the gospel. Whereas here it is making a proclamation, kerygma, making an announcement to the spirits now in prison. Now here we have pneuma in the plural. And in the plural, pneuma often refers to angelic beings, whether elect angels or fallen angels. So who are these spirits who are in prison? Now, in Jude 6 and in 1 Peter 3.19, we have this phrase that they are in prison in bonds of deep darkness. But in the parallel passage in 2 Peter 2.4, and incidentally, it's 1 Peter 3, 18 through 21, and uh, 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 6 are passages that only make sense if those uh, sons, if the sons of God are the, are the reference as understood as fallen angels. So you have a group of spirits, a group of fallen angels who are imprisoned. Here in Jude 6, it's clear they're imprisoned in bonds of, of darkness, in the Second Peter two four, it translates it in in hell in the New King James version. Other versions may translate it in Hades, but literally in the Greek, it's Tartarus. Now, Tartarus is the uh, is a compartment in in what the Bible generally describes as Hades. We'll look at a chart to define that in just a minute. What's interesting is. Um, Tartarus is viewed as the domain of of the angels. Uh, Part of this is the abyss where you have certain demonic armies uh, confined until the midpoint after or the second half of the tribulation. In the medieval period when the Mongols came across and invaded into Christian domains in the Middle East and in the Byzantine Empire, they were called Tartars because they were the demons from Tartarus. That's where that name. So when you read that, sometimes it's spelled T-A-R-T-A-R-S, sometimes it's spelled T-A-T-A-R-S. It just depends, but that's where that terminology came from. They called the Mongols the Tartars because they were the demons from hell because they were so vicious in their in their attacks. Okay, here is a chart showing the uh, makeup of Sheol, the Old Testament or the Hebrew word, or Hades in the New Testament based on the passage in Luke 16, 19 to 25, which is the episode where Lazarus the beggar dies and goes to Abraham's bosom, also referred to as paradise. The rich man uh, outside of whose home he had begged then dies, and he goes to a place of torments. And in between, Luke describes there is this impassable Barrier. It's a great gulf fixed, uh, or a fixed gulf, as some translations have it. And then uh, on this other side, the punishment side of Sheol or Hades, you also have this area of Tartarus, or the abyss, which is where these demons are confined. So today, among fallen angels, you have three or four different groups. You have those that are still 
uh, free to roam around carrying out Satan's nefarious schemes upon the earth. Then you have an, this other group that were the sons of God who violated their position according to Jude 6 and these passages in uh, 1 Peter 3, 18 and following, and 2 Peter 2. And then you have another demonic army that's confined in the abyss in Revelation chapter 9, and this is the fifth uh, trumpet judgment. And then the sixth trumpet judgment involves another demonic army that is held under the Euphrates. So they're not here. They're just held under the Euphrates until they're released as part of the sixth trumpet judgment in uh, uh, the second half of the tribulation. So this gives us the, the picture of Sheol or Hades as it's described in Luke 16, and Abraham's bosom is where Old Testament believers went when they, uh, when they died because the door hasn't been opened to heaven yet because Christ is the first fruits, is the first to open that. So they are there until Christ dies. And then at that point we're told that paradise goes to heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, uh, paradise is moved to heaven. So paradise as a location in, as a compartment in Hades or Sheol, is vacated at, after the resurrection when they are led, all the Old Testament believers are led then into, into heaven. And torments remains as well as Tartarus. And they and torments is the holding cell for all unbelievers until they are uh, resurrected at the end of the millennial kingdom for the great white throne judgment. So that's all that's left today is just torments. Now the next verse in First Peter three reads, "Who?" Now that refers back to the spirits in prison. It is a neuter plural. Uh, that is, that's described there in, in terms of the participle, the who uh, were disobedient. That's all one participial verb, uh, verbal form in the, in the Greek. But it describes, it's a, a, it's a participle that's in the neuter plural, so it refers back to the spirits who are in prison, who uh, formerly, indicating sometime in the past, just some generic statement about the past, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So this clearly states that these spirits did something at the time of Noah that's the cause of their incarceration. Now, what could it be other than the sons of God and that infraction as they took on the form of human beings and sought to pollute the genetic uh, pool of humanity. This was a satanic attack in order to prevent the seed of the woman from Eve uh, being a tr- truly human, and they, their attempt was to pollute and destroy the pure human gene pool. So these spirits once formerly were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, that indicates when this happened, uh, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So the eight persons are Noah and his three sons, it's four people, four males, and their four wives. That makes eight. Every time I add it up, as bad with numbers as I am, I still get eight. And they're brought safely 
through the water. Now, the New King James translation there is not accurate when it says brought safely through the water. The verb is an aorist form of dia, the preposition dia, plus the verb sozo, dia sozo, which means to be saved through something. So it should be translated, as I put it in brackets there at the end of verse 20 on the screen, they were saved through the water. They didn't get wet, though. See, in these, the, this is the first of those five real baptisms, and nobody, get, nobody gets wet in the real baptisms except those who are judged by God. Everybody else in the world got wet. Noah and the seven with him stayed dry. The second of the real baptisms is the baptism of Moses in 1 Corinthians 10.2. Moses and the Israelites, that's a reference to them, their identification with Moses. They all stayed dry. It was the Egyptian army that got wet as uh, as they drowned in the water. So these are, uh, uh, but they're saved through, that is, those with Noah are saved through the water. It becomes a means of delivering them. They're elevated above everything in the ark, and they're saved through the water. Then we have a really interesting statement that's difficult to capture in the next verse. In the English, it reads, corresponding to that, and we miss some of the implications in the English, and, and, and we sort of get lost in that verbiage, corresponding to that. Well, what does that mean, that, that, that corresponding to, to what? corresponding to the ark, corresponding to the salvation through the water. What exactly is this describing? English breaks down there because we don't have uh, relative pronouns and pronouns that have gender that indicate precisely to that the word they're, they're, uh, to which they're referring. It's not ark because that's a masculine noun. It has to be water because water is a neuter noun, and the um, the antitupos and the and the um, the noun I mean the pronoun that's translated that is a neuter noun, a neuter pronoun. So that neuter pronoun that has to refer back to a neuter noun. Well, the only neuter noun in the immediate context is water, so it's corresponding to the water. So if you look down in the breakout box. What you see is uh, the word is a antitupas is a neuter singular, and it means a copy or a symbol. Now, pay attention. When I talked about the Lord's table a minute ago, I said you have two elements. You have the, the symbol and then what the symbol represents. The term that's used for the symbol is the Greek word tupas, meaning a type, an image, a mark, a uh, a, a, like a like a um, like a mold for for something, and then what it represents, what it pictures, is called the antitupas. So the type is the symbol, and the antitupas is the reality that the symbol represents. So, for example, the lamb, the Passover lamb, is the type. It's the symbolic representation. The Lamb of God, Jesus, is the antitype. That's what the type is depicting. In the same way, what this is saying is the flood water is the type. It is picturing something. 
the Noah and his family are saved through the water. Now, we ought to ask another question. What kind of saved is this talking about? Now, for Noah and his family, that salvation is a physical deliverance. But when we get into 1 Peter 3.21 and it says, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, is this phase one, justification, or is this phase two, sanctification? What's Peter talking about in this chapter? Peter's not giving us a dissertation on how to be justified or how to be regenerated on how to... It's not talking about... uh, Phase one in this chapter at all, it's talking about phase two. It's spiritual life truth. So what what Peter is saying here is that corresponding to that act of the deliverance of Noah and his family through water, baptism now in the Christian life is the basis for your sanctification growth. What baptism is he talking about? He tells us. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not. This isn't talking about ritual baptism. It's not talking about believers' baptism here because it's not talking about that physical water baptism. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, and that relates to the cleansing of sin. Cleansing of sin. Now, is that phase one or phase two? That's going to be phase two. And then at the end, he says, through the resurrection of Christ. Now, is the resurrection of Christ related to justification, phase one, or the spiritual life, phase two? Now, this is something that's really important. I covered this, I don't know, four or five years ago, coming out of of Easter, talking about the passage in Romans chapter 10, that we are to believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I made the point that that, that language that Paul uses in Romans 10, 9, and 10 is not talking about justification but sancti- because the, it's wrapped around the imagery of resurrection. And resurrection is a spiritual life illustration The death of Christ and his payment for sin is a justification focus. And that's where we're going to see this in Romans 6. The death of Christ on the cross is the payment for sin. That is phase one. When we trust in Christ, we're justified. The penalty of sin is is removed. But we still have the presence of sin. We have to be saved from the present reality of sin. That's sanctification. That's newness of life. So look at this. Just I want you to make sure you get this because this is not easy to walk through this. The, the antitype is a baptism that is a present tense reality. You only have two options, water baptism or baptism by the Holy Spirit. It can't be water baptism because Peter makes it clear it's not the removal of dirt by the water. It's not a physical thing. But it's the cleansing of the conscience. That's what it stands for. And it's through the resurrection of Christ. Now, when we go to Romans 6, 4, Romans 6, 4 states, 
Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That's our justification. That's identification. That just as Christ was raised from the dead, that's resurrection, by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. See, resurrection is related to newness of life. That's phase two. The death of Christ is related to phase two. So Romans 6, 4 is saying the same kind of thing that is said by Peter in 1 Peter 3.21. The resurrection of Christ relates to, relates to phase two. So what is, what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about that, that the same thing that Paul is talking about, that baptism by the Holy Spirit has an ongoing reality because of our new position in Christ that's related to resurrection, the resurrection model and resurrection imagery that is the basis for our new life in Christ. And that's the same thing Paul's saying in Romans 6, 4, is that there's a there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, while it happened instantly at the point of time of sal- uh, uh, that we were justified, what Paul is doing in Romans 6 is saying the reality is that if you, you've got to understand this because it's going to revolutionize how you think about yourself. You don't think of yourself anymore as someone who is a sinner. You are, by the way. So am I. But that's not our fundamental identity anymore because our fundamental identity, our real identity, is in Christ and we've been identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, so we're no longer a bond slave to sin. And that's what the rest of this chapter is going to say, is you are now, indicative mood, that's the reality, you are now a bond slave to righteousness. So why do you keep going back and making yourself a slave to the sin nature? You don't have to, but we all make those choices far too frequently. Now, last week I went into, I didn't go into all of that detail. I went to the fourth point. And the fourth point, I asked the question, so what kind of baptism is Paul talking about in Romans 6? We have to understand this. All through the early church, water baptism was not viewed as something that was optional for the believer. If you trusted in Christ as your Savior, you were expected to be baptized almost immediately. Now, there have been times in my life when I've said, well, people really ought to wait until they get back, so they're really taught well enough to understand it. But that's not the picture that we have in Scripture. Even of those who um, who are coming out of a Gentile background, they are baptized almost immediately. We see a number of different pictures of this. We see with the Jewish audience in, in Acts 2 and Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, we see it again in Acts 4. We see it again in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, they all had a background, uh, a, a biblical background. We see it in Acts 10 with Cornelius and his household. As soon as uh, Peter's preaching, the, while he is preaching and explaining the gospel, they're believing, and verse 44 says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and this just blew away those the Jews that were present, that Gentiles had the same uh, Holy Spirit reality that they did, that they were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then, and they also spoke in tongues. And in Acts 10.47, Peter says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So immediately thereafter, now that doesn't mean that he didn't explain it, but he doesn't, it doesn't take long to explain the significance of water baptism 
and the ritual to people. So he probably explained it, and right away they get baptized. Acts 16, 14. Now here's a guy who's got no Christian background, no Old Testament background, no Jewish background, no uh, pre-understanding of any Old Testament truth. And it's the Philippian jailer, and he gets shocked into salvation because he, he, it's a nighttime event. The angel comes, opens the, the, the doors of the prison. Nobody left. But when the, um, oh, that, that's later in the chapter. This is with, with Lydia. Lydia did have some background, and uh, she was baptized immediately after salvation along with her family. In Acts 16.31, this is what I was mentioning a minute ago, the Philippian jailer, he had no background. And he's scared to death because the death penalty in the Roman Empire for a, uh, a jailer who, who lets his prisoners escape um, is, is, is immediate. He's gonna, he knows he's going to die. So he is scared to death, and he comes and asks uh, Paul and Silas, what can I do to be saved? Because he's heard them singing hymns, and so hymns have a testamentary value. And so he comes and asks him what to do, and they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you'll be saved. And then in verse 33, immediately he and all of his family were baptized. There's no, no waiting there. They're all baptized. Then we come to another really interesting scenario, and that's in Acts 19. Now in Acts 19, this is, depending on how you date things, Acts 19 is at the end of Paul's uh, second missionary journey. Before his third missionary journey, he ends, he comes back to Ephesus, and he's going to take up residence in Ephesus for about two years. And while he is at Ephesus, he got probably two or three letters from the messed up Christians in Corinth. And so he has to deal with their problems. And... At the same time that he's dealing with the problems of the church at Corinth, this happens. He finds that there's a group of, of people who have learned about John and John the Baptist and his baptism, and they come to him, and they want to hear what he has to teach. And so he's asking them questions to find out what they've understood and what their background is, and so he asked him, he says, well, into what baptism were you baptized? And the answer, into John's baptism. Now, remember, John's baptism was for the Jews in relationship to the kingdom message. So they're Old Testament believers. But they don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about the day of Pentecost. They don't know anything about church-age doctrine. They're still Old Testament saints. Remember, Acts is this book dealing with transition going from the age of Israel to the church age, going from the law to grace. And so Paul tells them in verse 4, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is, now he tells them who that is. It's Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul baptizes them in in Ephesus, and at the same time, roughly, he's written in his opening chapter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, a, a passage that sometimes has been misunderstood by some people. 
the Corinthians divided up into little factions. A lot of churches have little cliques, and they identify. We always seem to identify with, with different pastors or different churches, and so they were doing the same thing. One said, I'm from Paul. Another one said, I'm of Apollos. Another one said, I'm of Peter. And the really holy one said, well, I'm of Jesus. I'm of Christ. They were the original holy rollers. And Paul says, well, is, Christ, is the body of Christ divided? Not at all. Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Not at all. And then he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Now, there's no period there. See, Paul's not making a definitive statement that baptism is wrong. He's just saying, I'm glad I'm not getting sucked in to this divisive battle that's going on in your church. So I'm glad I didn't really baptize any of you except two guys. I, I baptized Crispus and Gaius because I don't want to get sucked in to your little games. And then he says, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. If I had baptized more when I was there, see, his associates did the baptizing. Paul didn't, but his assistant pastors, so to speak, did the work of, of the baptism. But he's not making a blanket statement here that there's something wrong with baptism. What's wrong is the Corinthians' attitude of using it as a foundation for division. Because at the same time that Paul is making this statement, he's also baptizing the, the, the disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus. So, so Paul is not contradictory. He's not talking out of two different sides of his mouth. He is personally baptizing in Ephesus. At the same time, he's telling the Corinthians, well, I'm glad I didn't baptize more than two of you because you guys just really misunderstood the whole thing or taking it out of context. So he's, this is not a passage that can be used to argue that for some reason Paul uh, had second thoughts about baptism later on in his ministry. I also pointed out last time that when, when thinking this through, we see that baptism is clearly used uh, as a picture of death. Jesus used it in terms of the baptism, uh, his baptism on the cross in Matthew 20, 22, Luke 12, 50, and Mark 10, 38. Now, getting back to baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of confusion over just what this is since the beginnings of the Pentecostal uh, and the holiness movement, the late 19th century and the Pentecostal movement. Pentecostals and holiness people believed in two baptisms because they were building their doctrine off of the uh, translation in the King, in the King James. Uh, the King James translation basically uh, translated the same Greek phrase with two different English translations. It depended on, you know, one guy was translating in one book, another guy was translating in another book. Uh, the guy in Acts preferred to translate the in clause with the by, and the guy in the Gospels preferred to translate it with a with. But it's the same Greek phrase. So in Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist said that somebody would come after him who would baptize with the Holy Ghost, with the Holy Spirit. That's King James, so I wanted to bring that out so you would see that. It's a while since some of you have seen the King James. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the statement is made for by one spirit. Now, it's with the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost in 3.11, by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 13.
but the Greek phrase is exactly the same in both places. In both places, it's the Greek preposition in, E-N, with the dative of the Greek noun pneuma for spirit, indicating means. Same thing. We, they're not two different baptisms, but the Pentecostals made the mistake of thinking that because you have with in one passage and by in another passage, that these must be two different baptisms, one you get at salvation and one you get sometime after salvation. So that was their basic problem. They had two baptisms. One was a baptism with the Spirit at salvation, and one was a by the Holy Spirit after salvation. Yet both of these phrases translated the identical Greek original. So what we have here is in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, a clear statement that by one spirit we were all, that's all Christians, doesn't leave anybody out, nobody missed out because they're waiting for the second blessing, we were all baptized into, and there's that preposition ace again, into one body. Just as Paul says in Romans 6, we're baptized into Christ. That's that body of Christ imagery there that we're all part of this unity with Christ and thereby, therefore, with one another. Now, the verb in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is an aorist passive indicative, which means we are receiving the action of that verb. Now, that's really important because in the, in the um, Matthew 3.11 passage, it's an active voice. Christ will baptize you. So who performs the action in that? Christ, not the Holy Spirit. He doesn't baptize us into Christ. Christ is the one who performs the action all the way through. Now, here's the explanation again. I've gone over this several times. People usually need to hear this ten times before it starts to make a little sense. All of this hinges on understanding the difference between an active voice verb and a passive voice verb and how English expresses passive voice versus active voice versus how Greek expresses it. We'll take a simple sentence. John hit the ball with the bat. See, in English, we could say he hit the ball with the bat or we, he hit the ball by the bat or by means of the bat. By and with are just kind of ambiguous there, and they can overlap. And either one communicates in English the same idea. When you have an active voice verb, the subject of the sentence is John, and John performs the action of hitting the ball. And he uses the bat as the means to produce the action. So the active voice verb, the subject the grammatical subject performs the action. The object, John hit the ball, the object receives the action of the verb. So you have subject, John, the active voice verb, hit, the ball is the object, and then with or by expresses the instrument. But when you shift this around in English and make it a passive construction, now you say the ball was hit with the bat or by the bat. The ball now becomes the grammatical subject. 
but the ball isn't the performer of the action. It is the grammatical subject. The verb is now shifted to was hit, becomes a passive construction, and then with or by the bat expresses what's used to hit the ball. So in a passive voice uh, construction, the subject receives the action of the verb, but the object of the verb, which is the, um, here doesn't say um, the ball was hit, but you could say the ball was hit, as we do in, I'm doing the next example, the ball was hit by John with the bat. The passive voice construction, the one who performs the action, is expressed with the phrase by John. Now, if you translate this, the ball was hit by John by the bat or with the bat. By John sounds the same as by the bat. By can exhibit means. But in English, we use that word by to express and identify the one who performs the action in a passive voice construction. Now, what does that mean? Why am I going into this detail? Because in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, when it says, for by one spirit, many times we've taken that to, in English to indicate the one who performs the action. Because in English, by indicates the performer of the action in a passive voice construction. But Greek is different. In Greek, it clearly distinguishes between the, the agent who performs the action and the, uh, the means, and I got these reversed. I did this the last time I used this chart. I've got to fix that. By John, the ball was hit by John. It should be, I've got those reversed. John, the agent who performs the action is indicated by either hoopa or dia. I've got those, the, the blue and the green should be reversed. The, by John, the, the agent of the action is indicated in Greek by either a hoopa or a dia preposition. The means is always indicated by in. So what we have here in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit in pneumatee, it's stating, still stating the means of the baptism, but we're not told who performs it. We don't have to. We say John hit the ball or the ball was hit by the bat. We haven't told who did it, but we know it's John from the other, the other sentence. That's a, why we know Jesus performs the action, and he uses the Holy Spirit as the instrument, just as John used the water. That's the parallel in Matthew 3.11. Just as John used water to indicate the new state of the, uh, of the repentant Jew, Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection and to bring us all into one body. So John the, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is first prophesied by John the Baptist. And then in all the Gospels, there's a prophecy. Then Jesus Christ reiterated it in Acts 1.5. And at all of those times, that baptism of the Holy Spirit was future. And under point seven, in Matthew, the subject, the one who performs the action is Jesus. He will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. 
Just as John performed the action of baptism, so Jesus performs the action of baptism. And he uses the Holy Spirit just as John used the water to, uh, to, to, as the instrument for the baptism. So we are, it is, we're not told about who does the action, but the means of the action is one spirit. And by means of one spirit, we were all baptized or identified into ace, one body. That's that same preposition we have in Romans. So the conclusion is that with this passive voice verb, it states the direction of the baptism, which is into Christ, that is, into the new body of Christ, which is the church. That is what is symbolized by water baptism, but is this, this abstract doctrine that is a foundation for the new spiritual life. So he now states the reason for this in verse 4, which is that we should walk in newness of life. This break has occurred so that now every, each of us has the capability to live this new life that he's talking about. It's not just magic. It is a reality, but we have to get it into our head what has happened. Now, what's interesting, if you look down here, that phrase newness of life is indicated by this noun, kinotes. Kine is the word for new. Now, we have that in another passage in Romans 7, verse 6. Now, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. Same word. So we connect the new life with the Holy Spirit. They're both talking about this new life that we have, and the Holy Spirit is the one who it makes that possible. So the conclusion. The purpose for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to break the tyranny of the sin nature by identifying us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That authority of the sin nature in your life and mine is, is broken. Unfortunately, it's still there. But it no longer has the right to dictate terms. But we let it all the time. That's the problem. Now, I want to skip that and come back to Romans 6 later. Just give, let me give you a brief summary. First of all, what Paul says in these first four verses is that believers should no longer abide or continue to walk by the sin nature. Just stop it. You're not supposed to do it anymore. You're a different person. That's verse 2 and 3. Second thing he says is that believers have been separated or died to to sin. We've been separated from the authority of the sin nature, and he states this in verse 2, again in verse 9, and again in verse 12. The third thing he says is that this identification with Christ's death equals a death or death or separation from the authority or tyranny of the sin nature. It's a reality. The fourth thing he says is that believers are also identified with Christ's resurrection to new life, which means we now have this new life for ourselves. It's a new mode of living, and we have a new authority. We are slaves of righteousness. That's who we are. And the conclusion is that we can't act as like slaves of sin anymore because we've been freed from sin. And this he states in Romans 6.6 6 and Romans 6.7. And this is the same thing that is stated in a hymn we often sing, for a thou- Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King and the triumphs of his grace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. 
Notice how brilliantly that's written. He breaks. That's a present tense. When we trust Christ, that's when it's broken in our life. Of canceled sin. It's already canceled. Expiation, which is the canceling of the debt, occurred at the cross. So it's brilliant the way this hymn is written. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. That is present tense. It's when we trust in Christ as Savior. His blood, indicating his death, can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Great theology. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through this this evening, come to an understanding of the foundation for the spiritual life and all that you have given us so that we need to think in terms of who we are now as slaves of righteousness, new creatures in Christ, a new identity, a new authority, and a new direction and a new capacity and capability and quit living on the old habit pattern of following the dictates of the sin nature and start living on a new habit pattern following the dictates of the Word of God. But that implies that we know the Word and we're walking by the Spirit. So challenge us with the importance of learning this and making this a reality of our thinking. In Christ's name, amen.